you are receiving this transmission, you are reclaiming the faith with Phil Baker on the Fourth Watch Radio Network. Welcome to episode 53 of Reclaiming the Faith, a podcast with a mission to reveal what the earliest Christians believed about the core issues facing us today. I'm your host, Phil Baker. Now let's dig into history. Hey, y'all, thank you so much for taking time to listen to Reclaiming the Faith. Thank you for your prayers for me and my family, for my podcasting partners, BDK and Justin Fall of the Fourth Watch Radio Network. We really appreciate it so, so much. Before I get into the show notes, I want to tell you about a new EP I have out. It's a five-song EP called the Love and War EP. You can find it on iTunes, uh, CD Baby, Amazon Music, Spotify, pretty much anywhere you find digital music, you can find it there. So please go check it out, and if it's a blessing to you, please uh, consider leaving me a rating and review on iTunes as that will help others find it a little bit easier. All right, well, today we are getting into episode 53, which is called A Person of Influence. And this is chapter 12 of my book, New Wineskins and the Simple Words of Christ. And it discusses the way that we can affect the influence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Did you know that? Did you know that you can affect how much influence the Holy Spirit has on your life? It's true. So we'll look at a few different ways here in this chapter, and I'll tell several stories along the way that I think you'll really appreciate. So I want to encourage you, if this episode is a blessing to you, to please consider leaving a uh, rating and review on my iTunes channel, Reclaiming the Faith, and also, go check out Amazon where my book is, where my book is located. And uh, if this book has been a blessing to you, please leave uh, a positive review there as well. Thank you so much for that. Links to all of these things can be found on my website, philsbaker.com. And you can also see a link there to contact me at my email, email philsbaker at gmail.com. Well, I'm blessed to be a part of Justin Falls' Fourth Watch Radio Network, along with BDK of Omega Frequency, who I do a monthly Q&A show with called Ready With An Answer. And if you have any questions about anything that's done on or said on this show or any of the shows on the Fourth Watch Radio Network or just uh, a question about morality or the Bible in general, uh, please feel free to email me or BDK and we will answer those questions on ready with an answer. Finally, the early Christian quotes that I use can generally be found on the CD-ROM version of the Anti-Nicene Fathers, which you can buy for a mere $5 on the Scroll Publishing website, scrollpublishing.com. All right, without any further ado, let's get episode 53 rolling. Chapter 12, A Person of Influence. Have you ever heard the statement that Christianity is not a religion, but a relationship? After being married for almost 12 years now, I have come to realize that there are several things I can do, both good and bad, to affect the levels of intimacy, peace, 
and happiness with my wife. Stephanie worked many years as a night shift labor and delivery nurse, and sometimes she would ask me to take care of the dishes when she was leaving. I would always tell her I'd do them, but there were many occasions when she came home in the morning to find dirty dishes still in the sink and me eating breakfast while reading the news. I told you I could be a jerk. (laughs) However, there are other times when I'm at the grocery store and see a beautiful orchid, one of my wife's favorite flowers, and bring it home for her just because I love her. Or there's the buy your wife a present on your own birthday, birthday gift. I can't take credit for that one. That's a Mike Satterfield special, and it works. The scriptures tell us that there are several things that we can do to affect the influence of the Holy Spirit in our lives and our relationship with Him. First, in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 29 through 32, Paul says that we can grieve the Holy Spirit when we engage in certain behaviors. He writes, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as it is good for the edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Now, the word grieve means to cause immense emotional sorrow or sadness. The negative actions Paul lists distress the Holy Spirit in a manner similar to the emotions we feel when grieving the loss of a loved one. There was a young man in a church where I used to work who had a rocky relationship with his father. I spent a lot of time discipling this young man, and numerous stories were told to me of broken promises and other heart-wrenching things. This young man could not remember his father, who was a Christ-professing man, ever telling him, I love you, or even giving him a hug after age seven. The young man was seeking to do well in all areas of life, academically, vocationally, and spiritually. Yet one day, a darkness came over him, and a crisis of faith ensued. We talked over the phone that day, and he explained various problems he was encountering at school and work. He asked how a good God could allow such things. Doubt and anger were filling his mind as he wondered if he had ever actually experienced God at all. I suddenly felt led to ask him about his father. Knowing their history, I asked if he had told his father that he forgave him. The young man said he had not. And I told him that if he had ever said the Lord's Prayer, he had asked God to forgive him in the same manner that he forgives others. I then directed him to Ephesians chapter 4 and told him about how we grieve the Holy Spirit when we don't forgive others, especially other Christians. I told him that the remedy for this is to imitate Christ who loved and forgave his enemies. I prayed for him and we hung up the phones. 
The next day, the young man met with his dad at his house. And eventually, he began to confront the issues that had caused him bitterness for so many years. He expressed his feelings to his dad without yelling or name-calling. Neither one of them got defensive. They expressed apologies to each other and offered forgiveness. They hugged, and the father told the young man, I love you. The darkness that once hovered over the young man now fled, and a deep sense of joy and peace filled his spirit. Well, not only can we grieve the Holy Spirit, but Paul says we can also quench the Spirit. He writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16 through 22, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good and abstain from every form of evil. The word quench means to extinguish or suppress. It's kind of like using a hose when suddenly the water stops running and you trace the hose backward and realize that a kink has developed, cutting off the flow of water. In a similar way, we can develop spiritual kinks that suppress the flow of the Holy Spirit in our lives. To illustrate this point, I'm going to pay attention to Paul's instructions to, quote, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks. From the spring of 2013 to the spring of 2015, I worked as a chaplain. Radio stations, construction companies, restaurants, and other businesses would ask my company to come to their job sites each week and check up on every member of the company. We would ask how they and their families were doing and if there was anything we could do for them that week. We would also provide various forms of pastoral care uh, like hospital visits, funerals, counseling, or just meeting with someone for coffee or lunch if he or she wanted to talk. Throughout the first few months of this vocation, I would be flooded with feelings of anxiety as I drove to each job site. A couple of times, I sat in the parking lot of the establishments for about 15 minutes, focusing on how I was about to say many stupid things and inevitably look like a fool. And basically, how it was about to be like middle school or high school all over again for me. And then, giving into my fears, I would drive off to find comfort in a Chick-fil-A number one with no pickles, telling myself many reasons why tomorrow would be a much better day to make a visit. You know, our Heavenly Father has promised to meet all of our needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. He has promised a steady flow of living water for His children. However, He has also promised that we have the ability to control to a great extent how freely that river flows in our lives. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-22 that one key to maintaining a steady flow of the Holy Spirit is by engaging God through our day with an awareness of His goodness, His greatness, and His fatherly care. So, one morning as I was about to do my chaplain work, 
I was again inundated with worry and fear concerning the task ahead of me. But this time, however, I chose to engage God. I began to sing one of my favorite hymns, How Great Thou Art. I dwelt on how the great and awesome God of the universe loved me enough to send his son to die for me and take away my sin, and how he is coming back to take me home to be with him forever. I sang louder and louder, not engaging just my heart, but also my mind and my spirit. I sang until I entered God's presence and believed the truth of the words I was singing more than believing the lies of the enemy. I kept singing until it was a prayer. I sang until I was worshiping God. By the grace of God, I worshiped until I was no longer in a place of quenching the Spirit, but rather in a place of excitement about obeying God out of a love for Jesus. I kept that posture of prayer during the ride to the establishment, and God did amazing things in the lives of the people that I encountered that day. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 through 25, Paul teaches us a third way that we can affect the influence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. He says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. My sister-in-law, Leanna, is a full-time missionary in Mozambique. She and her missionary friend, Ali, have been faithfully serving there for well over a decade. On December 24, 2012, Ali's father was beaten to death as he walked to his church to play the organ for their Christmas Eve service. The men who committed the vicious murder had no motive. They did not know Ali's father, he had done nothing wrong, and they had nothing to hold against him. They took his life in a brutal way, without hesitation and without provocation. 
As Allie's mom and her family sat in court, it was impossible to perceive any repentance or remorse on the part of the murderers. When the men heard the sadistic nature of their crime being described in painful detail, they displayed only anger and frustration at being caught. They didn't seem in the least bit sorry for what they had done. The story was highly publicized in the national news, and the courthouse was crawling with reporters with cameras ready to catch the family's response. Anyone would have understood if Allie's mom lashed out in anger toward her husband's killers. However, she surprised millions by publicly offering forgiveness to the murderers. She explained that she was doing so because that is what Jesus did for her, and that is what he did for all of us. The response was incredible. Scores of people began to get in touch with her, looking for a better understanding of how she could forgive such a crime. Allie's mother had the joy of pointing them all to Christ. Strangers showed up on her doorstep wanting to talk, and people stopped her in the supermarket or when she was in line at the bank. She began to receive hundreds of letters from people all over the country who were moved by what they had witnessed. Many described how they had been convinced to turn back to Christ, who they had abandoned years ago, or how they had been inspired to forgive an offense that they had been holding on to for decades, or how they wanted to know more about God. Various television programs invited Allie's mom to talk about her stance on forgiveness, and the church asked her to talk at various peace and reconciliation forums. Everywhere she went, she encountered people who were hungry to know more about God from her in a way that she, a natural evangelist, had longed for her entire life. People who had never met her before could look at her life and recognize, in what was for many the first time, a true demonstration of God's love. I believe that Allie's mother was able to reach so many people during such a difficult time because she allowed herself to be led by the Spirit rather than the flesh. She admits that forgiving her husband's murderers would not have been something that she would have been able to achieve in her own goodness or her own strength. It was not possible for her to forget what those men had done to make her husband suffer so much. Or, they, or how they had shown him no mercy, or how they had hurt him over and over again. Forgiveness was not her instinctive response. However, after many years of following Jesus and wondering at his willingness to forgive her own offenses, it was her heart's desire to, to let the Spirit do his work in her. When Paul says that we should be led by the Spirit— he paints a picture of a person walking beside a horse or a donkey, holding the reins and leading it to its desired destination. But he also implies that the horse or donkey is willingly submitting itself to the one leading it. Walking with and being led by the Spirit means allowing the Holy Spirit to set the course of our thoughts and actions. 
when this is true in our lives, we think and act more like the Lord Jesus because the Lord is the Spirit, as 2 Corinthians 3, 17 says. 2 Peter uh, chapter 3, verse 9 tells us that the Lord is patient with us, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. This is even true for the murderers of a man who is on his way to honor Jesus at a Christmas Eve service. Allie's mother's reaction displayed the heart of a person who is being transformed by the gospel. Many people, including other Christians she knew, responded to the killers with a message that sounded more like, go to hell. Some people living through the situation might have been tempted to exact revenge by seeking to have the two men murdered. But Allie's mom, though, lived out what it means to love our neighbors as ourselves. One summer day when I was in elementary school, my older brother and I went to my cousin's house to swim in their pool. I wasn't the strongest swimmer, which my brother knew, and at some point he convinced me to go out to the deep end. Once I got there, he playfully grabbed me and put my head underwater. I began to flail about, kicking and swinging, basically doing anything I could to get back above water. After a couple of seconds, he let me back up. I called him a name and said I was telling mom. Have you ever been in that kind of situation where you feel like you're desperately fighting to take your next breath and stay alive? Realize now that however low of a self-esteem you may have, or however much you think you hate yourself, you actually love yourself more than anything else in the world. And to prove it, all someone has to do is force your head underwater. And if you're like most people, you'll do almost anything to stay alive. And Jesus tells us that it's with that same fervor, passion, and fight that we are supposed to love our neighbors and even our enemies. We are supposed to love them as ourselves. Right now, as you're reading this, something inside you may be revolting against Jesus' teaching. Understand, that's what Paul says happens all the time. The flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh for these are in opposition to one another. However, if we stay close to the Spirit and are led by Him, we will produce the fruit of the Spirit in abundance, as Jesus says in John chapter 15, verse 4 through 5. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. The word abide also translates as remain. Allie's mom has produced much fruit for the kingdom of God because she has remained close to the Spirit through this ordeal and allowed him to teach her 
and lead her each step of the way. The fourth way to affect the influence of the Holy Spirit in our lives is by being filled with the Spirit. As Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. The word or phrase filled with the Spirit literally means to be under the influence or control of the Spirit. I got drunk for the first time at age 15. I had been at a house party for about 30 minutes and had consumed enough alcohol to get a middle linebacker drunk after four or five hours. Well, 10 minutes later, completely under the influence, I passed out in the cup of a girl I was speaking with. Later, I knocked over a cooler. People tell me I talked to a tree for a while as if it was a long-lost friend. I remember the host angrily telling my ride to get me out of there. And uh, as my friend opened the car door, I vomited all over the host, who had continued to chew us out all the way to the street. Then I vomited on my pants and in my friend's air ducts. In Ephesians 5.18, Paul tells us, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. He then uses this picture of being inebriated to make his point that we need to be filled with the Spirit. Paul is not insinuating that a Spirit-filled Christian is physically out of control like a drunk person, but he is stating that a Christian who is filled with the Spirit has chosen to become completely occupied by God. Some people teach that Christians are always filled with the Spirit. But if that were the case, Paul wouldn't have to command us to be filled with the Spirit. Also, continuing with the analogy of getting drunk, no one is always drunk. People have to do things to get drunk. And a person can't just take a sip of alcohol to get drunk. You have to be intentional about it. Others teach that when people are filled with the Spirit— they must speak in tongues. In the book of Acts, we find that sometimes they do, but the primary result of people being filled with the Holy Spirit is that they boldly speak the word of the Lord. We see this in the case of Elizabeth in Luke 1, 41-45, Zechariah in Luke 1, 67-79, Peter in Acts 4, Verse 8 through 12, the believers in the early church in Acts 4, 23 through 31, and Paul in Acts 9, verse 17 through 22. As Christians, it should be a great joy for us to boldly speak the words from God. And God promises that if we seek Him and yield ourselves to Him, we can be under His influence and do mighty things for his kingdom, by his grace. So, let us then take heed of Peter's words from 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 3, 7-11. For the time has already passed 
which is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Christ Jesus, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Being a good steward of what God has entrusted to us is the fifth way to affect the influence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Jesus said in Luke chapter 16, verse 10 through 11, He who is faithful in a very little thing is also faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? In 2004, after I accepted the invitation to go to Swaziland, I was informed that I had to raise more than $2,000 to make the trip. It was a daunting task, but by God's grace, I was able to raise about half of the required amount. Unfortunately, half was not adequate. Several of the other students were in the same financial boat as me, and we had only one week to go before the deadline to turn in our money. Then, out of the blue, an anonymous donor wrote a check to the school covering all of our remaining expenses. Hallelujah! What a clear demonstration that God wanted us all to be on that trip. When we arrived in Africa, we spent a week doing training in an area close to Johannesburg, South Africa. It was kind of like summer camp in Central Texas, and I didn't really feel like I was in Africa. However, when we crossed the border into Swaziland and I began to see poverty like never before, something changed inside of me. I began to feel overwhelmed with shame, anxiety, and a strong sense that I needed to go home. I told a couple of my group members what was going on, and during the next day, God sent several brothers and sisters in Christ to show genuine concern and to pray for me. But I would not be dissuaded. I called my dad that night and told him I needed to come home. He gently asked if that would be the best way to honor all the people who contributed financially to get me there. But he also told me that he would get me back home to Houston if that's what I really felt was the best course of action. The next day, I had a meeting with the ministry's main counselor. We talked for about 20 minutes, but she could tell that she wasn't getting anywhere. I was defensive and I had my mind made up. So, she raised the stakes. 
She asked if I had ever read Jesus' parable in Matthew 25 about the sheep and the goats. I told her I had, but she read it anyway. Why don't you take a moment right now to open your Bible and read those verses simply and seriously, like an intelligent 12-year-old child. That's Matthew 25, 31 through 46. So I asked her what that parable had to do with me. After all, I wasn't a goat. I was a Jesus-confessing sheep. Well, she reminded me how all the goats professed Jesus as their Lord as well. They called him their Lord, but they didn't walk as their professed Lord walked. She told me it wasn't enough to call Jesus my Lord. The way we steward what he has placed in our care reveals whether he really is our Lord. She said this was a defining moment that would prove my true sheep or goat nature. Then she got up and walked away. I went back to my room and I cried. I wailed and screamed at God in agony on my knees with my face pressed into my mattress. For what seemed like two hours, though it was probably only 45 minutes, I prayed for forgiveness and cleansing from my disrespect and doubt. Then I pleaded with God to carry me and give me strength to fulfill his mission for me. Just then, I sensed him telling me to turn to Isaiah 42, where I read in verses 6 through 7, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. I broke down after reading those lines. Then again and again, I've never wept that much in my life. At the same time, though, I began to feel God strengthening me and filling me with his spirit. Though I knew this portion of Isaiah was a, mess, was a messianic prophecy in nature, I could feel God encouraging me with the truth that the same Holy Spirit who had indwelt and empowered God's only Son also indwells and empowers His adopted children today. A little while later, as I was reading scripture and praying, I sensed God wanting to heal one of the members on my team of some sort of physical ailment. God showed me which member of the team was. We'll call her Courtney. As I tell the rest of the story, remember, this happened toward the beginning of the trip, before any of the other miraculous stuff had happened um, in my life. Next evening, my team was supposed to have a meeting at 9 p.m. I knew God wanted me to speak up during the meeting and ask if anyone needed to be healed, but I was a bit nervous, to say the least. Around 10 p.m., as the meeting was wrapping up and our team leader was getting ready to dismiss us, I blurted out, I know this sounds weird, but does anyone need to get healed of anything? Sure enough, Courtney raised her hand and said that she had been suffering from excruciating pain in her left hip for several years. We gathered around her with my friend Yako taking the lead. As he prayed for her, Courtney, an American Protestant, went limp. 
No one pushed her. She just went limp. And then she came to with an exceeding amount of joy and declared that all her pain was gone. Before the new things came to pass, God declared them. He took me by the hand and then went forth like a warrior to prevail against his enemies. Though I was angry with that counselor who pointed me to Jesus' parable of the sheep and goats, I am so thankful now that she was a good steward of the spiritual gift of exhortation. That confrontation helped me to be a good steward of the wealth that God had invested in me, and then God blessed me with the spiritual riches in return. If not for that good and faithful servant of Jesus, I know this book would have not been written. The final way we can affect the influence of the Holy Spirit in our lives is to simply ask for more of the Holy Spirit's influence in our lives. In Luke 11, verses 9 through 10, Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. The other day, I needed to take my lawnmower to the shop. So I raised my garage door, dragged out the mower, and lifted the heavy beast into my vehicle. When I came home, I complained to Stephanie about how I must have pulled a muscle in my lower back while lifting the mower. She looked at me and said, Why didn't you just ask me to help you? God has given us an amazing yet difficult task. We are to be the light of the world. We are to, come, we are to overcome evil with good. We are to love our neighbors as ourselves. We are to abide in the vine of Jesus Christ and produce good fruit. We are to make disciples of Christ, teaching them to obey all that he commanded. We are to persevere in Christ to the very end, even through torture and death. We are to walk as Jesus walked. And with such a high calling, it's no wonder God calls us to ask for his help. However, there are two other verses that concern our ability to experience the abundant spiritual life God desires for us and our ability to help others experience more of him. The first is 1 Corinthians 12 verse 31 where Paul writes, But earnestly desire the greater gifts. The second is 1 Corinthians 14.1, where we are told, Pursue love, yet earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. These are commands that God has given all Christians. So, I ask you, are you earnestly desiring the greater gifts? Are you earnestly desiring all the spiritual gifts? especially prophecy? Remember, God has given these gifts for the common good. Often, our spiritual gifts will give credibility to the message of the gospel to non-Christians. Sometimes, as James 4.2 says, we have not because we ask not. Indeed, it may be that our non-Christian friends Family members, co-workers, and neighbors have not experienced God because we ask not. If we are commanded to ask, 
To not ask is a sin, a sin that is depriving the world of experiencing more of God. In Luke eleven thirteen, Jesus says, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So if you are a Christian, how are you stewarding the precious gift of the Holy Spirit that God has entrusted to your care? As Jesus said, For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. It's Matthew 25, verse 29. So, may you be a good and faithful servant of the King of Kings. May you be a good steward of all he has entrusted in your care. May you never grieve or quench the Holy Spirit. May you walk with the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, and produce much fruit of the Spirit. And may you seek Christ with all your heart and find the door has been opened for you. God bless you. Days are no more.